Hello listeners and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Tuesday the uh, 28th of May 2019 and today I am interviewing by Skype Bradley Martin who is an Asia Times journalist uh, but has also worked for many other outlets over the years and uh, is an author of a, a wonderful book on North Korea called Under the Loving Care of the Fatherly Leader. All NK News podcast listeners should definitely go out and uh, read it if they haven't already. Uh, and Bradley Martin joins us today via Skype somewhere in Southeast Asia. Thank you, Bradley. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Wonderful. Th- thanks for your time uh, for joining us today. And th- the specific reason that I wanted to get you on the podcast was to talk about something that happened a long time ago. 30 years ago, you were in Pyongyang for the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students, were you not? I was indeed. And I, I would like to, to pick your brains about that. I've read the, uh, the chapters in your book that uh, deal with that particular uh, festival, so I'm familiar with that, but I thought I could get you to tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your experience there. How did you end up going to that festival? Uh, it was close. Uh, I, had, I had covered the 1979 ping pong tournament, and the North Koreans had, uh, had, had felt unhappy with some of my coverage after that. So I couldn't get in again for 10 years. Goodness. But in, in 1989, just before the youth festival, I ran across one of my North Korean contacts from the previous trip. And we were uh, singing Korean songs and having a pleasant evening. And, and he said, uh, when Sorry, where, where was this happening? New York. So he got me in. Wonderful. Okay, this is uh, it goes to show sometimes it's not what you know, but who you know. Exactly. And this event, uh, you know, I'm uh, putting together a uh, a mini series of podcast episodes focusing on that festival because I think it was uh, quite an event that there were somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand young foreign people descended upon Pyongyang for a period of eight days. Uh, how was the vibe compared to 1979? Well, the vibe was uh, completely different. I mean, we were talking rock and roll in 1989. That the, these these young people brought uh, brought their musical outlets with them, you know, their portable uh, device, and they were playing uh, rock and roll, the likes of which the, the North Koreans had not heard. So the vibes were were different, uh, and they came uh, from not only uh, third world countries, but from uh, the socialist. West, so uh, there were Scandinavians and Italians and other people who uh, who had uh, some ideas about what they wanted to uh, uh, show in regard to their feelings about what was going on. And I think there were also some Americans and Canadians from uh, leftist uh, student groups, weren't there? Yes, yes. Did you meet anyone there uh, from the States at the time? Uh, I can't recall having done so. The larger delegations were, uh, were as I say, European. Mm-hmm. We did spend quite a lot of time with the Europeans, and they're the ones who demonstrated uh, against the uh, regime's uh, human rights. Uh, yeah, could you tell us more about that? How did they show their displeasure with North Korea's human rights activities? Uh, they well, they they marched around the, in the uh, opening ceremony with some signs that made very explicit reference. Some people actually up in the stands were raising signs and got in a in a fist fight with some North Koreans. I, I can't claim to have seen every bit of this. We're just trying to piece it all together. But this is roughly what took place. That, uh, that there was a shocking uh, 
demonstration maybe that was it the first ever in north korea who knows yeah i can't imagine it was uh, at all welcomed by the uh, the north korean government no although when i asked uh, my my main contact whether that was the police who had restrained the demonstrators he said no those were just angry students he said we are a hot people. Mess with our our deeply held views, and and uh, and we'll show you what we think. Now, during the week, there was a a whole bunch of different activities going on. That there were some kind of uh, athletic games as a as a sort of an antidote to Seoul's Olympics of the previous year. But there were also political discussions and and seminars and debates and things. Did you uh, see any of those taking place? You know, I don't recall seminars. Maybe the participants from various countries were were spending their time that way. But uh, I think uh, we journalists were out and about just trying to catch anything uh, unusual that we might notice, some of the athletic events. But I'm sure you're right that there were seminars. It's just that... uh, I didn't go to any of them. Did you visit the um, uh, the department store in North Korea at the time? I think I've been to a department store nearly every time I've been to North Korea. I, I do I do know roughly the situations of the department stores back then. They were uh, not very impressive. Yeah, I, I read an amusing story in I think Theodore Dalrymple's book about uh, uh, going to a department store and watching some kind of uh, charade go on in which people bought uh, huge quantities of plastic bowls and then came around and gave them back or something like that? <laughs> I don't doubt it because the whole ground floor was covered with plastic bowls and basins. And this was a pretty ridiculous thing to show to a bunch of Western uh, consumerists. <laughs> nobody, nobody needed any bowls. And I don't think the North Koreans were badly in need of bowls either. I would say that the uh, the shoe department was not very uh, appealing. I, I think they had 50 designs for women's shoes, but they were all made of vinyl, uh, which uh, was not attractive to the tourists, as you can imagine. There were no uh, decent electronic goods. They, they, the closest thing to, uh, to a, a stereo system was one of those little portable record players that come in a, a box like luggage. You may recall those from the 1950s or 40s. Yeah. Now, in your book, you talk about having interviewed a defector later on who was, uh, who was at the festival, who talked about efforts by the North Korean government to train North Koreans in how to interact with foreigners. You mentioned that there was a uh, like a almost a textbook or a manual that had been prepared on you know how to uh, deal with or what kind of questions to expect from foreigners and how to answer them. Yes, yes, yes. They did have the, they had the questions prepared in advance uh, and and their answers were prepared. Was that in an effort to uh, to give a unified line to uh, to foreign questions or uh, was it more to sort of make sure that there were no uh, deeper level interactions? Well, both, I would think. They, they certainly didn't want people uh, bursting out and saying, you know, I hate Kim Il-sung or something like that. Mm. But uh, there was never much danger of that in North Korea anyway. People had not yet developed the uh, suspicion of the leadership uh, to the extent that we might have seen it later on uh, after the, the famine of the 1990s and some other events that 
made them doubt their leadership. The Cold War was just starting to end, and the uh, communist countries were just starting to uh, fly the coop, as we say. Mm. But people, people still uh, worshipped uh, Kim Il-sung uh, at that time. So I, I don't think there was any danger of a, of a revolution cropping up during this event. But they did see a lot, North Koreans did see a lot that would make them think, wow, there's a big wide world out there. And they were about to have this bigger experience of being separated from their suppliers because the East Bloc was just about to stop passing on all that aid. So it was a, it was a very uh, dramatic time if you had all the things that happened, including the festival and then the fall of, of yep. communism around the world. Well, that's right. The timing was very unfortuitous. I mean, it was only a few months from, uh, from the festival to the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's right. And already uh, North Korea's economy was hurting, but they were determined that we would not see that. So, for example, there was the most elaborate barbecue picnic lunch I have ever attended. I mean, the meat just kept coming and coming and coming. We do know, in retrospect, that they had already started having uh, uh, food shortages. Yeah. 1984, the year that they had decided to uh, to help out South Korea, <laughs> you may recall that the, the North Korean leader said, "Wouldn't it be amusing to offer to give South Korea famine aid?" Right. And then the South Koreans will have to say, "Oh no, no way, we're going to accept this." And then they'll look foolish, and we'll look gener generous. So the South Koreans said, "Yes, would you please send that on?" So then everybody had to have his rations cut while the uh, North Koreans saved face by following through on their offer. And I'm told that was the actual moment when you can say the economy started to fall apart in, in North Korea. Uh, back in 84, is it? 84. So by 1989, uh, they were putting up a, a brave front, but uh, they were having serious problems which, as we know, led into the the horrible famine of the 90s. Yeah. Now, the uh, the, the giant pyramid-shaped Ryugyong Hotel that was supposed to have been completed in time for the festival to house all these students, obviously it wasn't completed because it still isn't now, and it's still not functioning as well, a hotel. Don't be so picky, Jacko. It's only been 30 years. You've got to give them a little more time. Uh, uh, good point. Uh but no, I'm just wondering, where, where would they have housed all these fifteen to 20,000 uh, youth and, and young people and students uh, when they didn't have the, the large hotel that they had uh, planned for it? That was not for the students. The students were housed in skyscrapers. They spent billions to, uh, to rebuild Pyongyang and line the, some of the streets with new, brand new skyscrapers. And these were to be used first by the visitors and then turned over to uh, North Korean citizens. Unfortunately, a skyscraper is a terrible idea in a city that has frequent power outages. Right. Because then you have to walk 20 or 30 floors to get up to your apartment. So even today, I'm told that many of those buildings are, uh, are uh, moderately inhabited, not, not fully inhabited. 
uh, maybe some of them are empty. So it was uh, part of a huge mistake. The amount they spent in 89, according to some North Koreans from the higher echelons who, who were defectors, was really what put them uh, over and, and, and just made it inevitable that they were going to lose the race, that they were going to, uh, they were heading for economic disaster. Yeah, now that wasn't immediately apparent to uh, the uh, pro-North Korean student left uh, in South Korea. And uh, as you know, of course, they sent uh, a representative to Pyongyang, uh, Im Soo-gyong, who became very yes. famous. Now, you, you saw her, I think, uh, firsthand, didn't you? Yes, yes. She came sweeping into the theater the night uh, we saw the Flower Girl, this, this wonderful uh, stage musical, which was uh, sort of a North Korean version of Les Miserables. Ah, yes. And uh, everybody was so excited to see her because she was beautiful and she had defied her own government to come and see them. And the North Koreans were really touched and moved by her coming. And it, it, it was, it was and of course, it was not just she, but she brought, she was brought there by a uh, by another M who later became chief of staff to uh, current President Moon in South Korea. So uh, there were several of them who came up, three in the party, as I recall. And they went back and, and were punished accordingly. And this, this just helped the North make uh, heroes out of them. So the propaganda in the North, and instead of just depicting uh, the Kims, they started depicting this uh, M, Miss M, who was uh, sort of their you know, their Statue of Liberty. So you could find uh, sculptures and paintings. And by 1992, I saw that, that she had come to dominate uh, the non-Kim uh, propaganda visual arts in, in uh, North Korea. But there was, a, there, was a, there was a catch here for the propagandists because she went back and had a very brief sentence in prison in South Korea then she got out, got married, had a baby, you know, uh, eventually became a politician. People could, could look at this and say, wait a minute, you know, what if we did that in North Korea? What, would, would we be able to uh, get out of prison, uh, get married, have a baby, uh, <laughs> live a successful life after that? Of course not. You know, we'd be stuck in the gulag for, for the rest of our very short lives. So people uh, remarked on this, and not a few defectors mentioned it in interviews. When they got to the South, they said, you know, I thought, wow, this South Korea must be uh, quite a place. <laughs> so, so it was a, it, the, the propaganda was not fully successful. Yeah, and, and I, I know you uh, put together some of those photographs of the uh, propaganda art that featured Im Soo-gyong, uh, uh, in an article that you did for the Asia Times. I'm going to try to put a link up uh, on the, the webpage when this uh, podcast goes live. Uh, those paintings are quite extraordinary, featuring a very heroic-looking Im Soo-young. But I must say that they've all but disappeared now in North Korea. You know, when, when I was there uh, this year and uh, in, on previous trips, I couldn't even purchase a book or, or a DVD or anything uh, about the 1989 festival. It's almost been completely forgotten from, uh, from North Korea. I'm willing to bet that most of the people involved in planning the festival are no longer uh, among the elite. I mean, it was such a horrible mistake that somebody probably had to uh, suffer for that. 
for example, my main contact, he was still around for a few years after that, but he he, uh, he disappeared eventually. I I have no idea what became of him, uh, but his his name completely disappeared from the official roles. He was he was certainly deeply involved in in hosting this this event. Uh, I don't think it's something that they're pleased with. When they look back, they say, what. What did somebody have in mind when they said, <clears throat> let's emulate to South Korea with the Olympics, the 88 Olympics? Somebody made a huge mistake. Could you tell us about some of the uh, uh, the cultural uh, influences that you saw seeping into North Korea at that festival? You mentioned uh, some rock and roll and some disco. Did you attend any of the concerts or discos yourself? Uh, no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do any dancing. It, this was just a feeling you got walking around is that the... The foreigners were were really letting it all hang out. They were not hiding who they were, mm. and, and this was very attractive to the North Koreans on the streets. They could see these people uh, walking around and being quite different from anybody that they had ever known about. And then the music, of course, which you you couldn't come near a group of foreigners without hearing some of this music. Yeah, you know that later on. Uh, Music devices were 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 a huge uh, import demand there. This this in '89, I went to one event that I don't think you'd call it a concert. I guess you'd call it a concert. They had the uh, Hochombo uh, women's band mm. for us in a ballroom at the palace. This is this is uh, the Kim Palace. They were doing essentially uh, rock. They were they were doing somewhere between uh, between Western rock and K-pop or something, and and it was interesting because in '79 I, I had interviewed a, a music specialist in North Korea and asked, well, what about rock and roll? And my interpreter said, uh, what is rock and roll? We didn't have this problem in '89. They were already starting to. Uh, to like the new uh, music, and the presence of the foreigners just uh, sped that up and, 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 and gave them many new influences. So the the night uh, of the uh, Pochombo Girls Band concert, these uh, women band members who were essentially members of the, the, uh, the palace harem, they were really very skimpily dressed, then they came out with a little bit more clothing, and uh, this band was was part of the Happy Core. So they they performed a mixture of Western and K-pop, and then they came down uh, in uh, a little more clothing and danced with us uh, guests, uh, basically the foreign press and the diplomats. But what I was saying is that in 1979, this had been an isolated kingdom with almost no influences of this type. These, these influences had very much started to uh, work their way into the society. The, the 89 festival really uh, sped that up with all the music that the young people from abroad had, had carried along with them. Now, I heard from Andre Lankov, who I interviewed last week about this festival, that that was kind of the, the end of the North Korean experiment with, uh, with cultural liberalism, that the doors kind of slammed shut again after that festival. Well, that's interesting he should say that. Uh, and I guess it makes some sense because uh, 
you know, as I, as you said, we, we don't, we don't, you don't find anything about the festival. If you go to Pyongyang now, no, no books or anything. I'm going to say that uh, the festival was probably the idea of Kim Jong-il and maybe some of his uh, uh, hip young uh, advisors. And the fact that it failed uh, did not mean that Kim Jong-il was going to lose his job. We can guess that some other people lost their jobs. This is the sort of thing Kim Jong-il always liked to do. He always liked to have the women wear more makeup and look better and, you know, modernize the place in very superficial ways. Mm-hmm. You're seeing that again with Kim Jong-un. Uh, people keep talking about how modern he is, but it mostly seems to be the same thing. Oh, let's, let's let the ladies look good. Let's uh, have uh, a resort over on the coast where people can go and uh, have fun. Uh, this, that's sort of the same kind of thinking you had back in '89. I, I look at I look at the amount of effort that's being put into developing Wonsan Beach. Yeah, I can't help thinking of the '89 festival when they put that kind of money into Pyongyang, and it was a complete failure. Now, will uh, Donald Trump think seems to think that? Uh, they have some future as a as a tourist attraction, but I see no evidence of it so far. I mean, uh, who who is who is going to go there except uh, sort of one-time Chinese visitors? What do you think? I don't know. Well, I think South Korean tourists could be persuaded to go up there by boat, like they did to uh, Kumgangsan back in the late nineties, early two thousands. But I don't know if they're going to actually make enough money out of this to justify all the investments. No, that that is indeed that is the the, the key question, isn't it? I, it's hard to see that uh, immediately paying off. But yeah, I, I haven't done the numbers on that. Now, on your trip in nineteen eighty nine, did you meet uh, Kim Yong Nam? No, Kim Jong Nam. Uh, after my nineteen, I met him in nineteen seventy nine and had a five hour interview with him. Yeah, I was reading about that yesterday. Five hours—that's a heck of a long interview with uh, uh, the man who you know, technically was sort of head of state for North Korea for many, many years. Yes. Well, at that time, he was the head of foreign policy for the party, and uh, in seventy nine, and he was trying to persuade me and through me, Washington, the Carter administration, that Carter should uh, go through with his instinct and follow his instinct and bring the troops home. But by that time, uh, there was uh, the deep state in the United States had uh, had moved to block Carter. So uh, all the uh, arguments that Kim Jong-nam made, which I did write up in a lead article in the Baltimore Sun, the next morning, uh, those landed uh, with a with a plop in Washington. He was interested in what Kim Jong Nam was offering, which was essentially the same offer they they have kept making for all of these decades. But anyway, uh, Kim Jong Nam, uh, after our interview, he said, "Well, please come back to our country. Uh, you know, you've made many friends while you were here, and we look forward to seeing you again." But uh, I wrote to him many times, and he never responded. He, he didn't want me to come back to his country, and, oh. and he did not meet me uh, in uh, <laughs> 1989 or in 1992 or in 2005 or seven or eight or nine or whatever. So uh, I, I, I have not seen uh, Kim Jong-nam since then. 
since 79. Gee, well, he's, he, he might have a bit more time for you now, uh, Bradley, because he retired just earlier this year, finally. Yeah, I think it's a little early, though. He was only 91. I, I, I thought he should, he should stick in there for a while longer. Now, knowing what you know about uh, about North Korea, how, to what do you attribute Kim Jong Nam's extraordinary longevity uh, within the system? He he uh, he had no faction of his own to try to uh, bother the, uh, the the chief with. He was he was he was he was a factotum. He was there to uh, to serve the boss, and everybody knew that. I have read somewhere that he actually came in with the Soviets. That he was a uh, that he was a Soviet Korean, uh, but I can't vouch for that. Anyway, he he uh, he, he was there and he did his job and uh, and nothing controversial. And that plan of persuading the Americans to to pull the troops, uh, the leaders liked that plan. And when they almost uh, worked it with Carter, uh, they wanted to stick with that strategy. And so they've been working on it ever since. And they tried it, of course, with Trump. So then you saw uh, Kim Jong-nam uh, riding high uh, in his very last days. He was part of the delegation that came down to the... Uh, to the Olympics in, in South Korea. Uh, so they, they liked his, his, his approach. You might say that now that approach may have started to look like it's not going to pan out. I mean, you, you, you try it with Carter and then how many years later, 30, 40 years later, you, 40 years later, you try it with Trump and uh, almost, you almost get there, but no other uh, deep state uh, stops you, as Trump would put it. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, when, when he did retire, I thought, well, maybe uh, maybe they've decided they need a different approach to Washington. But I, I cannot tell you what that might be. Hmm. Uh, lastly, why don't you uh, give us a quick plug for the uh, novel that you recently wrote about North Korea? <laughs> okay. This, this is a novel that uh, takes place... In, in North Korea, after the failure of the uh, democratization and peace offensive, that is, after uh, the current Trump-Kim talks uh, are completely in the past. So it's, it's a slightly uh, a near future speculative novel, and it, it offers uh, one possible theory of how the North Koreans get all their money for the Kim regime, despite the sanctions, and it also offers a uh, a best case scenario how the Kim regime might end, uh, as opposed to the worst case scenario of, of uh, that you have in Jeffrey Lewis's uh, nuclear book, where where you actually have you actually have bombs falling. Uh, so my book has a best case scenario. And I, uh, oh boy, may I heartily recommend it to uh, to all of your listeners. Sure, let us know what the title is, please. Nuclear Blues. Nuclear Blues by Bradley Martin. And can that uh, be found uh, on Amazon, for example? Absolutely. In an electronic version as well as a print version? Yes, sir. Thank you. And do, do you, now that you're a correspondent for the Asia Times, do you still follow uh, North Korea affairs? I do, yes. What, uh, what's been keeping you occupied uh, lately uh, with regard to North Korea? Oh, well, I talked about food recently. 
should should we should we feed the North Koreans even though uh, they have all these devices for uh, turning our food aid uh, against us? And I basically said, well, yeah, probably because uh, at the at the very least we're we're reducing the market price of rice in the Jangmadang, the uh, markets where people actually shop. Right. Anyway, this is a question that I have to get to every few years because, of course, their their food production uh, uh, has serious problems every few years and they go hand in hand to the world. So I'm used to uh, considering this question. I imagine you are, yes. Well, uh, we do hope you keep watching uh, North Korean affairs from wherever you are. Bradley Martin, thank you for joining us on the NK News podcast today. Thank you, Jacko. It's been great. Thanks. And listeners, don't forget that you can check all of our uh, past episodes at uh, nknews.org, where you will also find great news from and about North Korea and also at NK uh, Pro. So please consider buying a subscription to one of those. If you like the podcast, share it with others and do listen again next time. Thank you and goodbye.